Wonderful, wonderful worship, wonderful scripture reading. Let's, um, let's pray one more time for God's blessing on our time here. Father, Lord, we come before you now and we are so grateful to you. We're grateful to you for a number of reasons today, Lord, but one of the things that are pressing on my heart is to thank you for gathering us as a church, Lord, to gathering us not only into the universal body of Christ through salvation and through conversion, Lord, but also gathering us together through membership into a local church, a local expression, which is really your uh, means of grace in our life to, to grow us, to nurture us, to protect us, and to keep us, Lord, to cause us to be uh, preserved in a world that is full of danger, full of temptation and trial. And Lord, we thank you that you have brought us into the sheepfold, that you bring us, Lord, into a place of safety, a place that represents your hand, not only to protect, but to bless. And so, Father, as we live out our new covenant faith, help us to understand how central the church is to our life. We pray these things in the wonderful name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, studying for today's sermon just really reminded me personally, um, just how incredibly blessed I am to do what I do. When I think about the, the place that the church holds in the, in the eye of God, in the economy of God, to understand that the church is His prized possession, that the church is that which the Lord is jealous over. It just really reminds me that to be the one to preach the Word of God in the context of the local church is an inestimable privilege. I regard it as a calling greater than anything on planet Earth, greater than any political calling you could have, any medicinal calling, greater than any scientific calling, greater than any cultural calling, greater than anything. I think, is this privilege to stand under the Word of God as an under-shepherd of the great shepherd of the sheep to preach, as Peter says, the oracles of God, as it were, the oracles of God. To me, that is a privilege of inestimable proportion. It's just a, it's humbling, it's terrifying, really, uh, to be the one that has to handle the Word of God in real time that has to rightly divide the word of truth for the people of God, to feed the people of God, to nurture the people of God, to protect the people of God through the preaching and the instruction of the word of God is just um, a grace. Uh, the Apostle Paul described it in that word, grace. It's a totality of pastoral ministry and the preaching ministry is grace, grace to do. Uh, what we do in the pulpit, and I do not take it lightly, and I covet, and I so appreciate your prayers. Well, looking at this passage of Scripture here, we come to the third part in a series of messages that we've been looking at in terms of what, what is the practical theology that emerges out of the new covenant? And here, we come to um, a, a portion of Hebrews that we can call, in terms of a practical theology, of what we can call loving the church. Uh, that's really what I want to 
focus on there, loving the church. And the reason why, I'll tell you why, is because with each section that we've looked at, I don't know if you've detected this, but Hebrews not only gives us a different aspect of a practical application of the new covenant in our lives, but there's also a different virtue every time. Uh, This completes what's basically a triad of Christian virtue, beginning in verse 22 with faith, then in verse 23 with hope, and now in verses 24 and 25 with love. Faith, hope, and love. And now the author wants to focus our attention on what it means for us to grow in our love for one another in the church. And so, because that is the, that is the virtue that the author decided to really focus on here, that's going to be kind of our operative term is love. But let me begin before we look at what it means to love the church. Let me begin with a preliminary thought, and that is what this whole passage is calling us to. It's calling us to an uncompromised commitment to the local church. And again, this all stems from what exactly is the church in the eyes of God? Well, of course, universally speaking, the church is comprised of all of God's elect people throughout all of time, beginning from the first person to ever be saved to the last person that will ever be saved. That is what the invisible, universal church of God is. But there's also a sense of a local expression. Now, I'm not talking so much about uh, denominations as much as I'm talking about a faithful, orthodox, biblical church that can be found in a local gathering of believers somewhere visibly on planet Earth. And that is what, um, that is what the focus is here But let me just uh, set forth to you why the church is so important. In the Bible, God puts great value on the church, as I've mentioned. It says in in Acts 20, 28, that God purchased the church with His own blood. See, See, it can't get any deeper in terms of ecclesiology than that. How important is church? Well, this is how important it is. God was willing to give up the blood of His Son in order to obtain her. In the Bible, the church is God's household. How valuable is your household to you? You lock your door at night. You have an alarm in your home. You watch your children. Maybe you have a safe in the closet full of uh, Texas-style weapons. All because you love your household. You love your family. How much more does God love His house? The Bible, in fact, the Apostle Paul putting a stress on this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he goes on to say, if anybody destroys the temple of God, talking about the church, God will destroy him. That's how serious God values His church. It's because the church is God's flock. It is His bride. It is His temple. It is His chosen race. 1 Peter 2.9. It is his nation of choice. It is his inheritance. It is his priesthood. See, the church is God's prized possession. Fathom that. Turn with me quickly in your Bibles just to show you this. Ephesians chapter 1. 
Ephesians chapter 1 for a passage of Scripture that may cause you to sit there and scratch your head a little bit. Because we understand how great it is for us to have a heavenly divine inheritance. We know how valuable our inheritance is when our inheritance is God. But uh, at the same time, we cannot deprive God of His inheritance, at least acknowledging it. Look at verse 18. I pray that uh, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. You see that? God inherits the saints. We are God's inheritance. 1 Peter chapter 2, we are God's possession. God possesses us. Everything that He did, redemptively speaking, going all the way back into the, 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 the recesses of the eternal decrees of God, He had the church as His prize and His possession in mind. The local church, Heritage Grace Community Church, and guess what? Now we're actually on the sign. I guess we're official. The sign outside, they're actually putting our name on the sign temporarily. I don't know if you saw the email that went out. I felt so proud. Is that wrong? I mean, <laughs> at least people know where to find us now, I suppose. But, but Heritage Grace, like every other local church, all it is is a visible local expression of what God sees and values and loves on the invisible level of the universal church because the visible church is such that it is, as it were, a mixed multitude of both believers and non-believers because on a visible level we do not see people's hearts. We don't know who is truly genuinely saved. We don't know who is truly genuinely elect. And we can have a general assurance of one another's salvation. But ultimately speaking, only God knows the heart. And so God gives us the local church in order for us to have a tangible, practical expression of the invisible, universal church. And He calls us not to neglect it but to love it. And so, let's talk about that. How can we know that we are loving the church? Let me just, um, let me just kind of uh, give a personal testimony about the church. I didn't always understand the value of the church. I had to grow in my understanding of just how preeminent is the church of God in the eyes of God. I thought... Um, at first, I thought the church was sort of uh, just a means to another end, that it was kind of the means to go somewhere and meet people, and that the church was kind of a big networking system, uh, an organization, or, or that the church was really the place where you go hear cool music and hang out with really spiritual people. But really, the church is the place where our sanctification is lived out. In other words, it's in the context of local church. That's why the Bible knows absolutely nothing of a rogue Christianity. Uh, the Bible knows nothing of an of a individual isolationistic spirit where you think that you can live the Christian life on your own, detached from the importance of the local church. Nothing like that whatsoever in the Word of God. 
That's why Hebrews here is going to call us to several things to point us in the exact opposite direction. You know, a Lone Ranger Christianity is not something that just began to occur today. It's something that has been happening for a very long time. And the author of Hebrews knows the danger of it, and that's why he seeks to exhort us to this very thing now. So let me begin by principle number one. Loving the church is intentional and it is ethical. The reason that I say that is because look at the text, beginning in verse 24. He says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You see the exhortation? First and foremost, it is intentional because Notice the the force of the exhortation here, that it has to do with something that you do mentally. He says, he calls us here to a consideration, a katanoeo, which is an amazing word because it actually speaks of a critical thought process. It is not a whimsical, it is not a sort of lackadaisical, it is not sort of a fickle, irresponsible, careless association with church that the Bible speaks of. Instead, it is a sober, critical, careful consideration of what the church is. Um, You know this because the author already used that exact word in chapter 3, verse 1 of this book. When he says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a holy calling, Consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. You see that? Now, how critical, how important, how careful, how exegetical, how theological, how precise do we need to actually, how deep, how profound, how contemplative, how devotionally do we need to think about Jesus as our apostle and as our high priest of our confession? Very, 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 very much so. I spent sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon carefully considering Jesus' high priestly ministry. In other words, it is a word that is summoning us to a careful contemplative thought process about exactly what the church is. But it's also ethical, it's moral, because what we're considering is this. We're considering how, how to stimulate one another to love and good works. Another very interesting word, by the way, to stimulate. To stimulate is the word paroxysmos, and it really appears rarely in the Bible. Um, It appears in extra-biblical literature, and it also appears in the Septuagint for the Old Testament to speak of a provocation. Uh, it is specifically found in places like Deuteronomy 29 to speak of God's indignation being provoked or stimulated. In extra-biblical literature, it actually speaks of somebody that is thrown into a convulsion because of some kind of illness, like epilepsy. In the Bible, it also has a negative connotation, like in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, it speaks there of having a sharp disagreement. In other words, being provoked to disagree. But here, it speaks of a positive stimulation. 
And it's beautiful because this is consistent with what life in the new covenant is all about. A fruitful life, a productive life, so that in the new covenant, we ought not to be provoking one another to jealousy or strife or division or disputes or envy or the like. But we are called to stimulate each other to a life of virtue and zeal. Notice, love and good deeds. Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. Sort of a qualification. If you are going to be a positive change agent, as it were, in the church, provoking people and stimulating people for love and good deeds, I would say one of the prerequisite things that needs to happen is that first you need to be filled with the Word of Christ. It needs to dwell richly in you so that it can pour freely from you. He says, let the Word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. You see that? Uh, that what that means right there is that the teaching of the church is not just the pastor's job. We are to teach one another. This is, the, this is the common fellowship of the church. This is this time when we take each other out for dinner and go to Starbucks and hang out or go to a prayer meeting or, or in the hallways and we're telling each other of things that we're learning. We're teaching one another spiritual truth for spiritual vitality. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another. Build up one another just as you also are doing. A true church, I think what 1 Thessalonians is saying is that a true church, if it is a true church, there is going to be some authentic edification going on. Could be a boring church. <laughs> Could be a cold church. <laughs> Could be a church that doesn't have it all together. Could be a small little tiny church like ours. It, it, it could be a church with, uh, you know, maybe they don't have all the gadgets and all the features and all the youth groups and all the concerts. But there has to be, if it is a true church, there has to be some kind of new covenant life coming back at you when you walk through the hallways of the church or the doors of the church. There needs to be some sort of life coming at you to stimulate you to love and good works. Always oh, strikes me curious anytime I visit churches and I walk in and the church is loveless. You walk in... And you know they haven't seen a new face in who knows how long, and they still act like they don't want to see your face. <laughs> it's such a contradiction. The church is a place where we intentionally and ethically stir one another up for loving good deeds. We have to do this if we're really truly disciples of Christ. And when we do this, we actually agree with God and we agree with Jesus as to what life in the new covenant should be like. Ephesians 2.10, it corresponds to our salvation, for we are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, when you provoke me to good deeds, you're aiding me in the whole reason why I was saved, to produce good works. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you have much fruit? It's the last time you sat and thought and examined, do I have fruit in my life? What's the fruit? Am I getting complacent? Come on. Come on. Challenge yourself a little bit. Don't get complacent. Don't settle in. Don't be ordinary. 
I'll stress that side of the equation because two good books were written. One was uh, 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 Extraordinary and one was Ordinary. And both brothers were trying to stress two aspects of the, of the, of the same coin of, 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 of the Christian life. That sometimes, yes, call, God calls us to the ordinary means of grace, coming to church, listening to the Word, praying with one another, encouraging one another. Just the ordinary means of grace, taking the Lord's Supper, all these things. But there's also an extraordinary element of the Christian life, a supernatural element of the Christian life, a, a power that is spiritual. Far be it from us, brothers and sisters, that the world would outdo us in their fellowship, their zeal, their love for one another. Far be it from us that the world would have a tighter fellowship than we do with one another. Jesus says they will know you by their love, and by, and by your love they will know that you are my disciples. We should have a very distinct love we should be pouring out our lives in sacrificial, selfless, sacrificial love to one another. I can preach to you no standard other than what the Bible gives us. And the standard is very, very high. The second thing is this. Loving the church is not only intentional and moral or ethical, but it's also sober and it is cautious. It is a sober issue. Look at verse 25 again. He says, after stimulating one another for loving good deeds, then the negative exhortation is this, not forsaking our own assembly together. See that? As is the habit of some. Now, I told you I was preaching today about going to church. And we have a lot of people out today, so <laughs> you should have seen after service how many people came up to me and say, I'm just telling you right now, I'm, gonna be, I'm not going to be here next, year, next week, so don't think I'd, you know. More important than the pastor knowing your heart, God knows your heart. And if you live before God, you don't have to care what anybody else thinks about you. You live before God, and if you live before His, His, His law, His standards, His word, then you can rest assured that you are doing what is required of you. In other words, live to please one person. Live to please God and Him only. But we're also to be sober about this because notice that this is a warning here. And it's a progressive warning. Look with me to verse 26 to show you this progression. Right after exhorting us to go to church, not to forsake the assembly, look at what verse 26 is about. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sins. You see that? It's almost as if in the mind of the author, the progression is one where you begin to drift. And it may begin by a subtle negligence in church attendance. But before you know what happened and how many of us can sit here and testify to the fact that the next thing you know and next Facebook post and this and that and no longer going to any church. And they're out of the church. And it's important. Therefore, Scripture calls us to be church men and church women. I pray, I pray for the commitment of John Calvin as he's, there he is, Calvin, after, after a lifetime of preaching and teaching. And sometimes I look at that and I say, oh boy, look ahead. Look, look at the next 20 years of doing this, 25 years of doing this. Woo, that's going to be a lot of work. And Calvin had done all of the work. He had preached voluminously. He had written 
He had served, he had ministered, he'd been in the hotbed of controversy his whole life, and there he is now uh, getting older in life and so old, in fact, that he could no longer walk to church, but demanded that he be carried on a stretcher to church. What's he going to do, sit at home? No, let's go to church instead. (laughs) You know pastors can jump up and down on this sermon. So you better fasten your seatbelts. But it's so true. Church is the place where we are safe. The warning here is not to trip us up, but to to put us in in a place of safety, a place of blessing. That's why church membership is so important because I believe what happens in church membership is that a person is actually committing, covenanting with a body of believers to place him and herself under the covering, the blessing of the church of God. I'll come back to that. But let me just stress again this whole concept of what church is. The church is God's idea. It is not our idea, Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to give you some verses. And please, I ask you, please go to the website. Download my manuscript. Get the notes. The reason why is because I've got dozens and dozens and dozens of verses here that I can't share with you lest we be here for three or four hours. And I wouldn't mind, but I doubt any of you would come back next Sunday for church, which would defeat the whole purpose of what I'm trying to preach. But please, please, plunder my notes, not because my notes are so great, but because the verses are so great that I can't share with you. Anyway, God is, uh, church is God's idea. It is not our, our idea the church is that which God has had in, in the eternal resources or recesses of his eternal decrees for all eternity. He had the church in mind. It is also called Christ's church in Romans 16. He is the head of the church in Ephesians chapter 5. He is the, uh, 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 the church is his building. He is, he is, or he's actually building the church, Matthew 16. The church represents his authority on planet earth, Matthew 18. The church is his body, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 14. The church is also God's household, as we've said. It is where believers are to be nurtured, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The epistles are all written from the perspective, the assumption of participation in the local church. Never, ever let anybody debate you or argue with you that they do not need church because they have a Bible and they have a soul and they have their private life and their private devotion and they're just fine without the church. Impossible. The entire New Testament is written from the perspective, an assumption, a presupposition that you have some sort of technical, formal commitment to a visible local church. It's really profound. Jesus died for the church. He died to institute the church. The church is where our discernment t- collectively is to grow. Philippians chapter 1. The church is where the love of God is found to bless us and His discipline is found to correct us because those things are not opposite. You see what I'm saying? In the church, we find the apostolic authority and, the, and, the, and their theological tradition. 
2 Thessalonians 2.15. It is also where believers will speak uniquely as one. By the very fact that we are gathered here together, we are saying something. The Bible says you're glorifying God with one voice. You, plural, one voice. And then we also know that according to the Lord's Supper, we also collectively as a church together by participating of the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. Really remarkable what the church is. So the church is so important that if you detach yourself from the church, it is as almost as if we can make the logical leap that you have detached yourself from Christ. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us. That is a reference to apostasy. They went out from us, and the us is the church. But they were not really of us, for had they been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us disassociating yourself from the church is a clear demarcation that you have chosen not to identify with Christ. It's really amazing, the power of the local church, not forsaking our own assembling together. And that word assembling is the word that speaks of a synagogue meeting, episynagoge. And, and actually, here the author of Hebrews puts a special a modifier on it. It's a preposition, epi, and then synagoge just simply means to gather, to assemble. But whenever epi is there, which just the, the, the actual literal preposition just means upon, uh, what, what theologians claim is that there's a special, there's a particular emphasis the author is trying to put on it, like epigenosis. is probably speaking of a, of a, of a more intimate, salvific knowledge of God. So episynagoge is probably speaking of the church meeting in a formal, technical sense. And this is also immediately followed by the comparative clause, as is the habit of some which is pejorative. In other words, it's negative. It's meant to cast those some in a negative light. As is the habit of some is an interesting phrase because the word here ethos, which ethos, we even use the word still today for ethos, right, when we talk about a particular culture, right? Let me ask you something. In your family, in your home, is there a culture of skipping church? There should not be, because according to Hebrews, for those who had a culture, if you would, a habit of skipping church, it did not speak well of them. There should not be that. There should not be a culture of church hopping in your house either. This is, where, this is where men and women really bear a huge responsibility. I'll put particular stress on the men leading their homes. Are you in a church or are you hopping around church to church to church? Some people fall into this rut, especially the more theological they are, Sometimes it seems like they become so theologically critical of everything that nothing satisfies them anymore. They don't fit anywhere. Therefore, they don't congregate with anyone. And I've seen it's a curse. I've had people come to my church and say, oh, we're looking. Okay, 
How long have you been looking? Five years. What? Five years you've been looking for a church? I, I'm sorry, I mean, I guess it's just me, but it doesn't take you five years to find a church. Uh, it takes you five years to be rebellious, five years to be self-centered, five years to be overly critical, to be imbalanced, but it doesn't take five years to go to If you need to move out of state, then move out of state. I remember a guy, I remember a guy who became such a John Piper fan that he became dissatisfied with every other church in the world that didn't have John Piper in the pulpit. Well, guess what? As far as I know, John Piper was only preaching in one pulpit. I said, that means you might need to move to Minnesota instead of going in and out of churches and criticizing the pastor because he's not like John Piper. I mean, it's preposterous what's going on. No, brothers and sisters, we're not called to treat that church that, that way. See the wisdom of Hebrews here? The wisdom of Hebrews here is that as a result of failing to assemble together, what ends up happening de facto is that you, in fact, neglect the church of God. It's a byproduct of your careless absenting of yourself from the church and its assembly. What is at work here is a heart issue, brothers and sisters, more than anything. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, really because this same exact new covenant progression has been found in the letter already. He's already kind of went to this exact thought. Um, Hebrews 3 verses 12 through 14, same thing, those some that forsake the church and then later uh, probably some of them go into apostasy is all because there is an evil heart of unbelief that leads them to fall away from the living God. And of course, first falling away from the church is the logical progression. Hebrews 3.12 says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil heart, unbelieving heart, an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And then look at, the, look at the, the, the context of the church. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, we collectively as a church, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And part of holding fast your assurance is whether or not you hold fast that assurance within the context of the church. Now, third thing, loving the church is not just a moral, intentional thing. Loving the church is not simply something that we do because we want to be sober about the consequences of neglecting the church. But loving the church takes an act of selfless and edifying encouragement. Look at the text. It says, not forsaking our own assembly to one another, he says, as is the habit of some, but, and then that is a very sharp contrast, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what is the, um, what is the, the, the trajectory of the new covenant believer? It is not a drawing away from, it is not an isolating yourself from the church, but it's actually a pressing into in an act of selfless encouraging of the brethren. Let me talk about this because we can easily fall into this rut, and I don't want people in our church to fall into this rut. If you're not connecting in the local church, it is ultimately a selfless th or selfish thing. 
I'm going to make that argument because there should be someone in the church that if you have Christian virtue, if you have a Christ-like perspective, there should be those in the church within your reach that you can encourage, that you can edify, that you can love, unless, of course, you are thinking primarily from a selfish, self-centered, conceited perspective. Scripture leaves us no choice of this. Turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. Scripture gives us, in fact, no other option. And what it does is it puts pressure on us to say, look, maybe you're not at the perfect church. Maybe you don't think our church is the perfect church for you, but you're here because of pragmatic reasons, because maybe there's no other church you really want to go to. Maybe they don't preach good doctrine enough. Maybe there's just not enough fellowship. Whatever. What Philippians chapter 2 tells us is that there is, is enough, there is enough spiritual reality in any true church so that the mind of Christ can be lived out by you in that church. Look at this text. Therefore, verse 1, there's any encouragement in Christ. Is there? Is there anything in Christ that you can encourage one another with? There certainly is. These are actually, uh, uh, these are actually first, first class conditional statements, meaning it assumes a positive answer. It assumes there is, so you can translate it, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, because there is fellowship of the Spirit, because there is affection and compassion. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. The ultimate overarching purpose in the church for every believer individually here is to glorify God and to advance His gospel and His kingdom in the world. There is enough there for us to say, well, you know, I don't like open-air preaching. That's just not my thing. Okay, no one's forcing you to open or preach. You go do your evangelism as long as it's biblical, within biblical parameters, however you want to do it, however you'd like to do it. Okay, well, I don't like contemporary songs. I only like hymns. Some people are psalms only. I only like to sing the psalms. Okay, well, we don't sing only the psalms here, so you're right. You might have to go somewhere else. <laughs> but there's somewhere enough that we can unite on. There's enough of a unity because we are in Christ. Matter of fact, because what it means to be in Christ is to be selfless. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That word empty conceit literally means vainglory. In other words, you think way too much of yourself. <laughs> Coming together for Bible study is not a power trip. It's not a competition. It is, a, it is an act of mutual stimulation of faith and gifts for the betterment and the edification of the hearer. That's what it is. It's not so that you can be the contrarian in the room. It's so that you can be an, uh, an agent of edification for the sake of your brethren. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And really the word there is mind. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The whole purpose is edification. 
But this, um, this whole theology of the local church is also going to challenge us in a, in a different way. Point number four, loving the church is also progressive and eschatological. It, it is that because he says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, three words come to my mind when I see what this is saying here in verse 25. Three words come to my mind. Complacency, urgency, and accountability. Let me tell you why. Complacency. Because it is so common for Christians to fall into a rut in their Christian life. If we are not on our guard, we sort of get tired of going through the motions. If you don't understand that those motions are God's means of grace to edify you and encourage you and build you up, don't be fooled by the culture either. Because the culture is what has led to the seeker-sensitive churches. The seeker-sensitive churches that are a market-driven church service that says we need to continue to be relevant, number one. Number two, we need to continue to pump out products that the people in the church are going to buy, even though it's free. (laughs) So we need to come up with new ways of doing church. So we need to incorporate new things, new ideas, new props. We need to start whatever the big fad is on the scene. We need to incorporate that. What are the big churches doing? That will hopefully work in our church, and that will produce a big church. So, for example, what's really big in seeker-sensitive churches today is series. You ever seen that? We're doing a series on marriage. Okay, it was maybe not, nothing wrong with that, right? But then when you see what the series is... It's really a non-exegetical, non-expository, non-theological, right? Non-biblical. Oh, they might reference a verse here and there, but then the pastor goes back to talking about what he wants to talk about. Or, or what the program or what the sermon or what the curriculum that he downloaded off of whoever's website tells him to do in his church. You think this is a joke. It's not. I had a deacon a long time ago that joined our church, uh, my previous church at Sovereign Joy, he joined the church because he had the wildest suspicion that at the church where he was at, he had the wildest suspicion that the pastor was actually downloading sermons from somewhere else. And you know what? So he did. He went on there. He paid the money at the website or whatever. He found it, and he found the exact sermon that his pastor was preaching the previous Sunday. You think this is not happening? There is idolatry in the heart of so many pastors today, the idolatry of growth the idolatry of success, the idolatry of appearing as if uh, your church is growing because of something that you're doing. Growth has become an idol. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe growth is good for a church. I think there is something to question a church if it's been around for 25 years and you still got the same 25 people. I think you better examine that as well. But, but, but please understand, it's not even close in terms of the ratio, what's going on with the idolatry of numbers and money and 
church buildings and growth and marketing models. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And the pastor has to constantly be on guard for himself. Okay, so confession time. Okay, so when I'm at a pastor's uh, uh, conference and I'm with a, 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 a table full of pastors and they're all telling me they go to churches, and how many people are at your church? Oh, 5,000. Oh, 3,000. We got about 2,000. We're running about 2,000. The temptation for the pastor is to think, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? Is I doing something wrong? I've even called Chris Matthews. Chris, what am I doing wrong? You're not doing nothing wrong, man. Just keep preaching the Word of God. Okay, all right. <laughs> I trust that. I mean, so it really boils down to we cannot ever become complacent in the church the ordinary means of grace that God has ordained for us, for our good. You know, the other issue of complacency here is that the Bible calls us, forget complacency, the Bible calls us to be zealous. I bring this up for a reason. Ask yourself, really ask yourself, write it down, jot it down, go home and study it. When was the last time you did a study on zeal? I think zeal has become something of a forgotten virtue in the Christian faith. Jesus said, zeal! For your house has consumed me. Where is the zeal in the church today? It says that, it says that God wants a people purified for himself for, in order to be zealous for good works. Where's the zeal today? It's a question we all have to battle with. Jesus told the churches in Revelation, repent and be zealous. But it's also an issue of urgency. As you look at the text, he says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see that? More and then the impending of something. Uh, do you live in light of the impending return of Jesus Christ? This is also a slight trick of the devil. L let me say this. It is the wicked in the Bible that looks at the coming judgment, at the coming of Christ with apathy and disdain. Where is the promise of His coming? Everything continues as it was from the beginning. His coming. Please, you sound like one of those fire and brimstone, doom and gloom. No, no, no. For us, the second coming is a principle of purity. In other words, as we look at the impending coming of Christ, it should produce for us an eager, zealous awaiting. He already mentioned this. If you look back at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, he says, Christ... Having been offered once to bear the sin of many, He will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, meaning he, not to deal with sin, He already dealt with sin, but to those who eagerly await Him. There needs to be a zeal, a joy. As Calvin said, the nearer His coming is, the more we ought to labor in the church. Amen. And then finally, because we are in eschatology, there's also an implied accountability. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because 
just like Luther who said, you know, Luther was asked what his plans were for uh, a coming day in his calendar. And Luther says, there's only two days on my calendar, today and judgment day. In other words, I don't worry about tomorrow because all I really care about is what am I doing right now for Christ and, and, and then the fact that Christ is going to return. So today and judgment day, you get the heart of what he's saying. I think it's born out of passages like this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 through 10. It says, therefore, we must all, excuse me, we also have as our ambition, whether at home, that means that you're still in the physical body, or absent, that means that your soul has departed the physical body, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all feel the Feel the weight of that. We must all, pastor, deacon, apostle, prophet, children's ministry worker, worship leader, mom, dad, kids, everyone, president, whoever, candidate, whoever, everyone must stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Wow. The Apostle Paul lived his entire life and his apostolic ministry in the light of the great assize, knowing that at one point in time, in fact, just as Paul one day was on a missionary journey, as certain as he was on a boat headed to Ephesus or headed to Malta or headed to Cyprus, as certain as his missionary journey had begun, one day his life would end and he would stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the way that he had lived his life, to be recompensed for his deeds in the body, good or bad. Now, praise the Lord for the believer. This does not mean God will weigh your deeds and say, well, you've done too much bad and you're condemned. For the believer, it's not a judgment unto hell. For the believer, as 1 Corinthians chapter 3 makes clear, it is a judgment of reward. But, but I also think that there will be sorrow, regret, remorse for the things <clears throat> that we have done in the body when they did not glorify God. See, this day is meant to purify us. The impending coming of the day of Jesus that day draws near and ear every single day. That verse will never be not true, that His coming is closer now than when we first believed. Every day brings us closer to our eternal destination. It is really that simple. Let me sum up. As we look back over the course of this passage and as we think about what the author of Hebrews has given us here, a virtual theology of the practical implications of the new covenant, let me, let me emphasize this, that the reason why this should be so precious to you is that as we move from authentic worship, as we saw, and as we move to an authentic gospel with our confession, and as we move into an authentic uh, a, a participation in the church, what we find then is that God loves us to the extent that He desires the whole person. 
Isn't that wonderful? God wants the totality of the, of the life of His people. He cares as much as what's going on in the privates and the, in the private aspect of who you are as much as the public aspect of who you are. He, he cares about what you do in the prayer closet as much as what you do in the public prayer of the church. God wants the total person devoted to Him. I think this comes from places like Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your might. In the Hebrew, he emphasizes all, all, all. Not because he wants to be redundant, but because he wants to be exhaustive. He wants us to understand the total life is His. These words, He says, which I am commanding you, shall be on your heart. Now, I read verse 6. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That was what was required under the old covenant. But what has the new covenant made certain is that that law, in fact, is upon our hearts. Right? Hebrews chapter 8. Verse 10, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I take Israel there as typological of true Israel, not ethnic Israel, true Israel, after those days comprised of Jew and Gentile in Christ. But it says, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see that? A life of total demarcation by God. Your entire life is marked by Him. Your identity is changed in Him. Your whole life is consumed with Him. And so, in closing, turn with me to Romans chapter 12 to show you that everything, our whole life, every aspect, our body, our soul, our strength, everything devoted to Him. Romans 12, beginning of verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, watch this, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, or as one translation has it, which is your reasonable act of worship. Isn't that wonderful? There's uh, one systematic theology, in fact, it's called, it's by Brakel. He wrote a four-volume systematic theology, and he entitled it Reasonable Service, based on this text. As the whole theology that he presented there, he knew it was a comprehensive theology of the whole Christian life. He saw it as nothing more than reasonable service to God. In other words, we owe him our life because of the new covenant. We owe him everything. Jesus spilled his blood so that you could be a member of a church. Jesus shed his blood so that you can edify people in the church. Jesus shed his blood so that you can encourage and build up the church and so that you can live with the expectation that he is coming back for you one day as your high priest to take you in to the holy of holies where we will dwell with Him. He will be our God. We will be His people. We will be with Him in a holy realm, in a holy communion bond for all eternity. Praise be to His name.
Let's pray. Father, Lord, I, I do thank you that in our church we have so much of this. And I can celebrate the fact that we have so much of this encouragement, fellowship, zeal, commitment to your church. But I also know, Lord, and as a pastor, I've known this for a long time, that sometimes we make poor excuses for not coming to church. And we as members of the church, we have seen people come, people go, people come, people go. And what you call us to do at Heritage Grace is to be faithful, knowing that our, our personal participation is a big deal. It's a big deal when we walk into a men's study, when we walk into a ladies' study. It's a big deal when we show up at small groups, when we show up to church. It's a big deal because we add a component that was lacking in the body, a finger, a hand, a nose, an ear. We need to be a whole body. And so, Lord, we pray, God, that you would just continue as we see the day approaching Continue to increase our zeal, our love for the body of Christ, and that we would grow and deepen in our commitment to your church, not for the sake of anybody but you, not for the sake of anything other than the fact that your son Jesus did it all, that his once-for-all sacrifice has so sanctified us and consecrated us, that his once-for-all sacrifice is enough to cause us to gather in perpetual celebration in the new covenant. Oh, Father, bless our church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.